Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Two Hearts, a new Who podcast. My name is James. And I'm CJ and this is the only podcast where we come straight from the fridge, man. And every week here on Two Hearts, we take a look at another episode from the Doctor Who revival. And this week... We're looking at two forgotten dumpster babies from series two, The Idiot's Lantern and Fear Her. But as always, before we get into that, how are you, James? Well, I would, okay, little inside baseball for you you guys listening at home. Uh, This is the second attempt to record this episode. Uh, We initially had... Uh, like a whole other intro recorded and then there was some technical issues and then by the time we got around to addressing those uh, a new trailer had dropped and so we sounded like cartoonishly out of the loop when we were discussing our predictions and whatnot for the Christmas special um, so now we've just we've come full circle it's a fresh week I'm feeling good CJ's feeling something uh, and hopefully we are we are completely back on track how are you CJ um I, I um before I get to how I am I do like how like haphazard and all over the place we must seem to you as recording I was gonna say as recording artists um that's not entirely true but as podcasters the the truth of it is we're also quite a mess behind the scenes too so you know you're getting the full experience when it comes to CJ and James truly um exactly right exactly we we like like, we're not terrible, and I feel like we definitely hit our stride in the middle somewhere, um, but these past few weeks have just been... I mean, as you can tell by the sporadic upload structure from us as well, like, we have obviously been dealing... Personally, we've been dealing with a fair bit, and then, like, on top of that, we just have had genuine technical problems. Um, but we're here now. We're here to talk about... Well, okay, here's the other thing, actually. Another inside baseball for you. The conversation you're going to hear on... Uh, what is it? Uh, the Idiot's Lantern mm. is the original recording that we had. Um, well, I've tried to spruce up the audio as best as I can, um, but that was too lengthy a conversation for us to go over it and do the whole thing again. So that's going to slot into the episode at is, as is, and then we're going to have like a, a fresh Wednesday night chat about uh, Fear Her. But before we do that, we do have, as I said at the top, a fair bit of Doctor Who news to talk about. Well, we do. And it's not even like uh, a lot of different news items. It's just a big news item that dropped, which was A, uh, Captain Jack's back, but also there's a trailer for Revolution of the Daleks and uh, a date for the fest- for the festive special and a new look for the Daleks, which we already knew about because it was leaked literally a year ago. It was, it was. And I remember when we talked about that initial leaked uh, new look for the Dalek, obviously it was like, you know, broad daylight photo. I don't think either of us liked it particularly uh, all that much. But now that I've seen it as like a proper, both in the trailer and some official stills uh, with like the lighting up uh, elements on top of it and whatnot, it just... It looks so silly and so <laughs> over the top that I've looped all the way back around to loving it. Um, so I, for one, am excited about our new very shiny Daleks, which, I- as you know how I feel about Daleks in specials, I think I wish they'd die forever, of course, and I still stand by that. But if we're going to do more Dalek stories, let's at least make them look interesting. You know, I agree with you partly. Um, I was not, I, I wasn't a fan of them. Uh, initially, and when you had come around to the design, I also, I hadn't, uh, I still really didn't like them, but 
having now watched the trailer, having looked at it, studied it very, very, very closely, um, I am coming around. And I also quite like the the little light details on them and the fact that when they're based entirely on the trailer, the fact that when they seem benign, they're blue. And when they're in attack mode, they're red. Um, it's very hokey and dumb, but I love it. Yeah. They've got like real old Daleks are bastards kind of color scheme. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because and look, as, as we're going to talk about now, the trailer seems to imply that uh, the, this new round of Daleks are... Uh, I, I guess like the police now. <laughs> wow. I hadn't thought about it like that, but yeah, I guess they call them defense drones, I think, which I don't know why you'd ever look at yeah. a Dalek and think drone. Cause it's like a big fucking tank, but uh, yeah. Okay. Yes. The police, which I mean, I do wonder if we're going to have a little uh, character wrinkle with Yaz complaining about her job being stolen by a machine. Um, but that would require for the show to remember that Yaz is a cop. Ooh. So, I guess we'll see how that goes. I did. I, I Okay. Bit of insight into me. I do have random musings on Doctor Who and I had one in the shower the other day um, where I was thinking about like Yaz and her cop career. And I, I don't remember if we've spoken about this in the past, but James and I 100% have spoken about uh, the fact that Yaz is a cop, the fact that uh, the show barely remembers it as it is, uh, and also see uh, how the show just does not seem to want to engage or knows how to engage with the fact that Yaz is a cop in the current political climate. Um, maybe this episode will see us address it finally. Maybe it will see Yaz drop the force entirely and start traveling full time with the doctor. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, and look, I, I feel like you're very specifically setting up for that to be a possibility. Um, given that, I mean, it, it seems like if you're going to do a story like this within Doctor Who, and especially within the current climate that it was uh, written in, you are looking at, you know, overextension of government power, um, you know, citizen control, blah, 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 blah. All, the, all that fun stuff that Doctor Who is usually only happy to play with in terms of alien racism or not. And so to see, you know, somebody come out of 10 Downing Street flanked by Daleks is like, oh, okay, I don't know if you're actually going to be commentating on um, the West's sort of uh, glacial decline into some sort of like robotic fascism. But uh, if you're going to, let's at least do that. Let's make it interesting. And like we just said, let's acknowledge that Yaz has an active role in these power structures. And especially again, like as a woman of color, there's so much that they could like draw on there. I don't think they will, but it (laughs) would be fascinating Um, because like, yeah, it's, Again, as, as we like to say here on Two Hearts, all the pieces are on the board. Uh, I just want Chibnall to play them in the right way. Um, and with a renewed focus on Yaz, seemingly could be a thing, given that we've also got Graham and Ryan officially stepping away. Yeah, they very, 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 like, idiotically released this news, is the only way I could put it. Um, because it was, like, a confirmed rumour for such a long time. And then... It was only officially confirmed that they were leaving in a random interview Chris Chibnall did. And then I think it took like a week or so after that interview came out for their social media account to make a post about the fact that they were leaving and and release an interview. It was just like, when you think about like uh, past companions leaving, it was big news. And it was the Doctor Who going out with that news first. It was never a rumor. Well, it might've been a rumor, but it was not a widespread rumor. Um, so this approach has been 
uh, odd, to say the least. But I think Chris Chibnall's approach to secrecy and uh, and keeping the the story hidden for as long as possible has meant that oftentimes he doesn't get ahead of the story or their production team don't get ahead of the story. And that is frustrating to watch as an observer. But I do understand how that would be from inside because you want to preserve the secrets and you want to preserve the secrecy around your episodes so they can be a shock when they go out and they can really grab and surprise people. Um, Personally, I think Graham and Ryan, Brian, Graham and Brian, Graham and Ryan should have left uh, at the end of season 11 uh, having said that, I am happy to have had them along for as long as we have, but I think it's definitely time that they retire. And honestly, n- where the story left them at the end of Timeless Children, it looked fairly obvious that they were going to leave because Ryan, at the end of that story, seemed very comfortable with the idea of leaving. Um, he was the only one who didn't yeah. really put up much of a protest at the idea of going back home. Exactly. Like, I know that him and Yaz occasionally had scenes where, like, you... I think there was, like, one or two of these, but, like, they'd be quietly sitting together having a conversation about what does our future actually look like if we continue to travel with this person. Um, uh, And we've made no secret that we think that um, Series 12's writing has has been a bit lacking. Um, And so it would have been good if, before his exit, we'd maybe had more of a arc leading up to his choice to leave um because at this point it would just be him graham and ryan and uh, ryan and uh and martha that chose to leave the doctor um assuming that you know tragedy doesn't strike and they don't do what they've done with every other companion except for martha um so it again it just would have been good to have more of a lead up to this moment because like i read the news and I just didn't feel for much mm. of anything. And it's, and it's not because they're not good actors. Uh, it's not because I don't baseline like these characters. I do. And I do enjoy Ryan and Graham. Um, but it also just kind of feels like, yeah, it's their time moving on. Uh, and I don't, I don't want to feel that way. No, you do want to feel a sense of excitement and energy when it comes to the show. Chris Chibnall's approach to my mind has been very, uh, I guess the word is naturalistic. It, maybe it doesn't mm. fit so much but it is on par with what we've seen so far so at least it's consistent is the most praise i can give anything that this show has put out in the most recent years um and even then i maybe would even debate myself on that point but that's something no one wants to hear yeah that's the, like i heard you say that and i was like oh but actually uh, <laughs> clara and i was like oh, no, that's not let's not do this tonight we don't have the time or the patience um, so yeah, look, that is, I mean, yeah, and the only other, like, really big thing that came out of that trailer is that, obviously, Jack is back, um, uh, <laughs> I kind of hope he dies, um, <laughs> and not in a, not in, like, a harsh way, just in, like, a, I think it would be a good end to his character to actually end his character, mm. and I think it would give, going into series 13, um, uh, a bit more gravitas that maybe the timeless child stuff didn't deliver to series 12. Like I yeah. feel like series 12 was very much, um, you know, hinging on that you were really gonna like get into the timeless child mystery. And if you didn't, like a lot of us didn't, um, I, I think you just need maybe like refocus your efforts, pull it all the way back in and make it much more of a personal internal thing, mm. um, moving forward, you know? Yeah. A bit of weight maybe is what it would, that decision would lend to the show. It's interesting. You've hit on something that I've, I've been thinking about this story, which is like, I think it's going to be an extremely heavy and loaded one because 
essentially this episode is going to be a sequel to four different stories. It's going to be a sequel to Timeless Children, which is not resolved by any means and will, I hope, continue into season 13. Um, it's a sequel to the Arachnids in the UK because uh, <laughs> uh, Chris Noth is back as that businessman nobody likes. Um and it's also a sequel to Resolution of the... Uh, Resolution, sorry. Um, the New Year special from a few years ago. And it's a sequel to uh, Fugitive of the Jadoon as well, because it's got Jack in it. Um, and, mm. like, I like the idea of Jack being there if he's used as a example and a counterpoint to a companion leaving, which I think he will be based on what we've seen from the trailer. Um, it, my only hesitation is that I just, I worry that all of these elements, Jack especially, is going to overcloud an episode that really should be about Graham and Ryan leaving. Uh, yeah. But remains to be seen, you know, we've had bad companion exits before and we will, I'm prepared for another one. Um, except for Hellbent, <laughs> I will not have uh, anyone misconstrue I like Hellbent and I like Clara. Yeah, worth noting. Uh, only good companion exit, best of <laughs> <laughs> uh, No, no, okay. But I, I think we're probably going to cap it there because um, we will be doing a proper, like, Series 12 recap and we're going to get real real deep on our feelings on that one um, pretty soon before this special comes out. I mean, this month, actually. We're already in December, which is fucking insane. Um so yeah, we're going to wrap that one up there and then we are going to now pivot over to the old recording of our thoughts on uh, the Idiot's Lantern. So please enjoy that and uh, new CRISPR uh, CJ and James will will join you after that one. So um, have fun. See you later. All right, we have a Eros Lin double feature to talk about today. So, mm. first of all, we're going to be tackling The Idiot's Lantern, directed by your boy Eros Lin and written by Mark Gatiss. Uh, the Idiot's Lantern is episode seven of series two of Doctor Who Revival. Um, according to IMDb, our good friends over there have summed it up as... <clears throat> As the coronation of Elizabeth II nears, the streets of London live in fear. Faceless people are stolen from their homes in the night, and something evil is lurking in the television. Uh, fair. Pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, we should... We should stop prefacing them as like, ooh, what's IMDb going to come up with? Because, like, they've been pretty consistently good. Uh, yeah, it, it's been pretty good this season. <laughs> I'll give you that. Exactly. And this is pretty apt. Do you want to do yeah, the... it is. In the plot section, listeners, I've just written wing it. So, do you want to wing it or shall I? No, I'll wing it and then you can do fear her. I love it. I love it. All right. So, <laughs> okay. The Idiot's Lantern um, is... Uh, essentially, you've got the Doctor and Rose. Uh, they land in um, London just before the Queen Elizabeth uh, II's coronation. Um, this is a time when televisions were still pretty uncommon in homes. But the particular London street that they land on, they discover that uh, pretty much everybody has a television in their house. Uh, and the television has been provided to them by uh, Mr. Magpie, who runs... I don't know, Magpie's Television Incorporated or some shit. Um, 
Magpie is selling these televisions to everybody in the street at a discounted rate because the televisions are being used by Magpie and a corporeal alien being known as The Wire as a means of infiltrating their homes and sapping away their like mental capacity or something like through the television uh, and it leaves people that this happens to with like a blank smooth face. Um, this happens to the uh, uh, grandmother who is living in the the, um, what is her name again? I don't think she has a name. No, the, the family name. Connolly. In, in the Connolly household, uh, old granny Connolly gets her face, uh, sucked away, uh, which causes her grandson, who is, um, very heavily coded as gay, uh, to essentially rebel against his abusive father, um, and his meek mother is kind of caught in the crossfire of their internal family dynamic. Um, eventually things get exposed because Rose's face gets zapped away when she goes to investigate Magpie's, um, business. And the doctor goes on a warpath to try to figure out what's happened here. Uh, he enlists the help of the Connolly kid, um, who eventually stands up to his father and kick him and his mother kick the father out onto the curb and say, you don't belong here. You're an abusive asshole. Um, and then they all watch the coronation as the wire starts sapping away, like the, the souls of everybody on this street in London to try to feed herself, to give her enough power to come back into a physical form. And then the doctor and the little gay kid uh, make a radio or something and they turn the radio on and it has like a weird signal and it fucks up the wire and she's like, no! And she gets trapped on a cassette tape or something. Um, and then Rose and the Doctor are reunited and they say, hey, gay kid, we know that like your dad's an arsehole, but you should forgive him because love is what it's all about. And they leave on a happily ever after. Yeah, so let's 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 discuss the idiot's lantern what did you think of this episode um i really like it to be fair i really 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 like it um i think that it is kind of like a very it, it for some reason it's not really remembered or in o some circles openly maligned kind of episode from series two and i don't really get it because i find it really really creepy i find it aesthetically great um i have a soft spot for like 50s britain um in a weird way um i i i think the wire is like genuinely an amazing villain um not like an like oh i can't wait to see her come back but just like it's a cool concept for a, a doctor who villain and i don't think people pick up on that enough and also like the faceless people it, it's kind of like one of those things where you're like like what? What? What's the kind of image that you can imagine a kid taking away from, like, from Doctor Who in their childhood? And like, the faceless people is like for me one of those, one of those things that sticks with you. Like the same way Weeping Angels or a third alien um, does. <laughs> uh, I think it's really just a really cool image. I think there's just it's just a really cool episode. I don't think it's particularly nuanced necessarily, uh, but because everything's just like that little, that tiny, that fraction OTT. Um, and I know that's what they're going for. Uh, I'm a hundred percent on, on board with it. And I really like it. What about you? Yeah. I, I came away feeling really good about this one as well. It's, um, it's, uh, and okay, this is, I know this is usually used as a derivative comment. Um, and, but I, I sincerely don't mean it this way. It kind of feels like meat and three veg doctor who, hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. 
um, because it is uh, it does harken back to classic Who. It's very streamlined in its structure. Uh, it's quickly paced nicely. Um, like you said, the Wire is a really fantastic villain. Um, the faceless alien like what what she does to people is is a really creepy and cool effect and um it yeah i don't know i just found it to be like a um like shockingly competent hour of doctor who uh like again not necessarily amazing no but really 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 solid um and it was just nice to feel that you're like you know what yeah i completely trust where this is going like mark gatus as a writer is Definitely an interesting one. I think yeah. Mark Gatiss, I this is one of his better episodes for my money. And I think it's better... Well, okay, maybe I don't mean it's better because, but, like, he has a certain type of story he likes to tell. And if you look at his work outside of Doctor Who, it's all bathed in 60s, 70s, 50s, British Britishness. Like, um, I think he even did this documentary about, like, and, like, coined a genre, which is folk horror... Um, which is the concept of, like, the Wicker Man, um, Witchfinder General kind of films. Um, so he's, like, very much died in the wool of British television and cinema. Like, it's his bread and butter. And this is an example of that. And also most of his Doctor Whos are historicals about Britain or some Britishness. Uh, I think he wrote Cold War, which is, like, it's supposedly about you know russians but they're all british accents and they're basically british um yeah well i mean it's it's also cultural commentary that's it and and cultural commentary on a on a time that's long gone well not long gone but you know what i'm saying well Um, that's it that's it that's very much what he's fascinated by and i think this is one of the better episodes because the the collision of um imagery and he has a he has a really keen eye for imagery and making those visual like he thinks as a director thinks i would imagine like in making those visual connections between the writing and the images he's using i think he's very clever in that respect um you know it's not a amazing leap to say that the day that a thousand people are all around britain are sitting around the television oh we'll have a television monster like that's not a hard leap to make, but it's still a satisfying one. Uh, and I think, yeah, like, I think this is a really good example of where he f- is firing on the right cylinders. Sorry, I've just kind of rambled. <laughs> no, I, I, I agreed with everything you said. Um, I'm just looking at his IMDb now. And I mean, like, obviously there are a couple of exceptions, but if you look at, like, The Crimson Horror, Cold War, uh, Idiot's Lantern, um... And, and Empress of Mars, actually. They are all very clearly commentaries on elements of, like, Western culture, whether it's, like, technology, uh, the industrial age, um, uh, colonialism. You know, I I don't always like his stuff because the other side of the Mark Gatiss coin is, like, Sleep No More. Uh, I mean, Robot of Sherwood is... I would put Robot of Sherwood right next to this episode, actually, uh, because it's just a very satisfying 45 minutes of Doctor Who uh, while not being amazing. Um, And The Unquiet Dead kind of lands somewhere in the middle. I think you get, like, sort of flashes of something amazing in there, but it never quite transcends. Um, But again, that's 2005. He's he's still honing his craft in terms of the show. Um. So yeah, with the Idiot's Lantern, I, in a sense, I am, um, 
the only part of it that I really bristle at is the, um, I guess like the, the commentary on the whole, like, Oh, the TV rots your brain and stuff. And it's like, I don't think it, the episode goes out of its way enough to really like differentiate the fact that that is a, uh, almost like a parody of a terrible, um, sort of like, uh, hand wringing point. Um, especially when you are part of one of the longest running TV shows of all time. Um, you know, like you, you would assume that there would be a little bit more like self-awareness, uh, sort of folded into that writing. Um, but other than that, very satisfying episode. Mm. And I don't think it's, it's not there. I think that there is a, it's, there's a really interesting thing happening in this episode but with this like theme of like progress versus conservatism. I'm not, that's not a very elegant mm. way of putting it, but like there are, elements of the episode like that it the the sort of uh catalyst not catalyst the sort of um catch-all i guess to describe all these things would be the 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 speech that tommy gives to his dad on the stoop where he says you know you were you know you were fighting against fascism remember you were fighting so that i could do what Mm -hmm. i want and say what i want and like that's a very idealistic thing to say but like in a nutshell it is you were fighting for progress and now you're a member of the establishment and you have the same thing happening with like um this strive to move forward with you know not with social values as well as you know technology um and the people who hold you back um and so i think ultimately it's not it's not saying television is bad or media is bad uh Hmm. but i agree with you that it doesn't quite it doesn't quite make that connection as apparent enough maybe no yeah because like it's it's it is literally in the episode you've got like the uh the grandmother of the the family uh who is actually as i've just looked up just called grandma Connolly. um you know she's she's spouting this whole like oh i've heard it rots your brains and it makes your brains come out of your ears and it's like Uh, I mean, sure. Yes. Like we are very much in an episode that's dealing with, like you've just said, the concepts of the old ways dying out and the new ones taking over and whatnot. Um, It's just, yeah, like it's, it's strange because the villain itself does literally sap away the brains of the people that sit in front of the television. Um, And it feels like, uh, and the thing is, as someone who doesn't really love big doctor speeches or like sort of more on the nose doctor speeches, I think I could have appreciated a moment here where, um, you know, somebody was like, oh, they were right. Those TVs are evil. And the doctor's like, no, TV's brilliant. Brilliant. That kind of shit. Well, he, you know? he does have that moment where he's like, where he sits down in the Connolly's front room and he's like, oh, I love telly me. And you're like, oh, okay, we get it. Um, oh, that's true. Um, um, but I think I think you are right. It's interesting because like that speech that I highlighted from Eddie, it, the doctor doesn't say anything. He just stands back and lets him have this moment, mm. which I really like. You know, it's funny because like you you at turns in this episode, you've got David Tennant doing the uh, big blustery like, and I'm not listening thing, and you're like, Ugh, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> like it's really like, oh fucking hell. But then at the same time, he's got some really nice he's got some really nice moments here um i like the scene where you have the reversal like the uh don't worry tell me all you know uh conversation between the inspector and tenant um you there's one really good line i really like which is like where they come out of magpie's shop and (laughs) david tenant says oh never give up as a wise woman once said Kylie, I think. 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) Like, some really nice moments for him in this episode. But, yeah, like, um, I think I just got carried away on a a bit of a a tangent. And I actually wanted to return to what we were talking about previously, which is just about um, Eddie Connolly. um, And specifically, that ending. I don't know about you, James, but the ending- So, the ending of the episode is- Eddie's been thrown out by Rita, his wife. Um, you know, the doctor says there's no place in this world, in this brave, brave new world for a man like Eddie Connolly. And Rose prompts, uh, Tommy to go after his dad. And the message I feel like being that the only way forward is reconciliation. Now, this is not a contemporary thought anymore. Like, this is not what we think about now when it comes to conservative people and how we talk to them. It's kind of got to this point now where it's uh, all about you've had plenty of time to educate yourself. You know, we're not coming to the table anymore. You have to do the work yourself. And I wondered if you thought, like, maybe I'm being, like, maybe I'm just over-intellectualizing this whole thing, but, like, I wondered if you had any particular thoughts or feelings about that. Yeah, I mean, like, you've you've butted up against, like, my main uh, criticism of the episode, which is that ending scene. Um, because, okay, so the thing is, if it was just painted as um, the dad who is named Eddie, that's right. So, yeah, if, if the dynamic within the Connolly household had specifically just been, Eddie's a bit of a, a bit of a shithead, but he's not... But he is, like, there's a fundamental kindness to Eddie or, like, a a fundamental um, fear of change and whatnot, which is in the character. But instead, the baseline that Eddie seems to operate from is this, like, very dark, very much coded as abusive household. Oh, very much. Um, Yeah, like... That's the and, and to Gatiss's credit, I think the way that he definitely conveys to adult viewers, you know, he beats these two. You know, um, the way that that is is told through shots and through tone and through um, some really incredible acting by uh, Deborah Gillette, who plays the wife. She's like this perfectly meek little face that just really nicely conveys all of the fear and danger of being in the household with a man like Eddie. And same goes for the kid as well, uh, Tommy. Um, if the episode had done a, a a different route and instead shown Eddie as, uh, not explicitly abusive, um, but, you know, just struggling to keep up with the times, um, then I think you could have the ending the way that it is where Rose says, yeah, like he's a fuck up, but he's your dad. That's what dads are for. And so he can go off after him and they can start bonding and and sort of mending that relationship there um but the issue i have with it is that you can't spend an entire episode convincing me that eddie is this like abusive toxic element of this household and then in the in the last 30 seconds have it put the onus for forgiveness and for a new path into the future onto a young queer kid who was being abused by his father um it, it just strikes me as like particularly tone deaf to what the realities are of victims, or either victims of abuse or marginalized people of having to be the ones to come to the table and say to your abusers or your oppressors, like, hey, 
I know that you've spent the last, you know, my entire lifetime that I've been alive, all I've witnessed from you is this kind of like oppressive, abusive bullshit. Um, but it's a brave new world now. I'm going to get my way at some point and I, I'm going to offer to shake your hand now or some shit. Like it just, it's for me, a, a misfire at the very end of the episode that I just try not to think about because I love the rest of it so much. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of where I land on that. I, I disagree with nothing you're saying. Um, and I think that in this very, in this instance, uh, and in general, like media that doesn't do enough work to, um, differentiate abusers as having shades of light to them. And I was thinking about, uh, just now when you were talking about, um, the, God, uh, the, the recent haunting of Blind Manor series mm. which has a very uh, like uh, the cent- one of the central the central villain is an is an abuser uh of several different women uh in the show and even though we get a, a great peek into why he is that way and some really good sympathetic scenes for him it never detract they never detract as makers of the show from the fact that he is evil and isn't worthy of not not worthy, but isn't um, going to get any kind of any real kind of sympathy from any of these characters that he's abused, um, mm. and that's refreshing because most of more often than not, it is like this ending. It is a case of I know that this man or whoever this person has abused you all your life, but you know, is you, are you really? He's your, dad. he's your dad. You know, you're wasting all this energy on hating. Let's just come together and love. And that's not the reality. That just isn't the reality. Um, I'm all for reconciliation. I that's a lot. I, I yeah, I could go into hours talking about this, but there is a line. There is a there is a very clear line, and I don't think it's like a a one case is all kind of situation. And I don't think that we should always be working to reconcile. Totally. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. And look, I, I don't think either of us really intended to come out of the gate with such a, a heavy kind of topic or heavy read on this episode. Um, I, I do think that it's just, especially given that, uh, Tommy is coded as queer. Um, you know, I, I think that we're just going to gravitate towards that kind of a topic to open up on. Mm. Um, because I mean, look, on the plus side, the rest of the episode is genuinely fantastic stuff. Um, it's it's a lot of fun. I think that uh, the, the biggest takeaway that I had from it, um, watching it the second time, sort of like take notes and really appreciate it and whatnot, um, was just how fantastic The Wire is as a concept for a villain. Um, because, you know, we, we just did the whole... Um, uh, what was it? Uh, Satan Pit and whatnot. And I mean, excluding the the big you know, muscly demon man at the end. Hmm. Um, again, it's another one of those, like it's a villain that exists outside of the physical realm. Yes. And I always enjoy the way that the doctor has to go up against something like that. Um, and it really helps the, uh, Maureen Lipman, the woman who played the wire just delivers a cracker of a performance. Oh, it's so good. Isn't it? She's really got a good line of like, it's OTT again, but it's like the menace that she presents in that performance is uh, exquisite. It's really good. Mm, absolutely. I, I noted that um, I like the way that she simultaneously talks like a, like a vampy woman on the hunt and also 
kind of like a program um mm. because there are there are times when she's very like sassy and sultry with her delivery and then there are other moments my absolute favorite is when um she's trying to suck the faces off of the doctor and the fbi or the mi6 i don't know whatever the london version of it is uh that agent and and tommy and she sees that the doctor starts like uh reaching for like a weapon or whatever and she's like oh this one's clever and he's armed withdraw withdraw <laughs> and it's just such a like she just slips into this like very mechanical very like the underpinnings of her character are completely shown in that moment when she's afraid mm. um and i just i i really really vibe with the performance that she turns in um and again with that whole idea of that like you know it's another creature whose own race has essentially cast her out and tried to kill her Mm. because they've been like you know whatever we are um and i mean whatever they are out there um she is too dangerous uh to to still be left alive um and so the idea of like a a fugitive of her own race coming to earth to try to restore herself to physical form um i don't know i just i just really fuck with it oh it's amazing i um it's another one of those like really good examples of um like just world building with the tiniest of details you get a really good sense of a character and and a place and a person um but more than that with the wire i think it we've said maureen lipman's performance is great but just that concept uh, concept is an overused word but that concept of a person on a television being the villain being the alien and it's not a recording it's not anything like that it's like they're actually there in the tv um <laughs> it's just like it's really pleasing it's what it is um yeah. and it, it i like how it plays with all those different things with by using that kind of character like having the the you know the iconic goodnight children everywhere line which she delivers with so much menace i love um, like mm. her ending being like that she's screaming and then she turns into the dot, the classic yes. dot. Um, yeah. like they, it's, it would be different if they did this episode and didn't hit those marks, but it's a sign of just how confident a production it is that they do it all with a plum. You know. Oh, absolutely. And on on the note of the way that they this episode uses the television sets, um, when the Doctor eventually goes to Magpie's business and he finds all of the faces oh. just floating in a black void on each screen, um, it, it kind of looks like the um, if you know that like iconic Queen poster where it's just like their faces basically floating in a black void. Um, that's what we're looking at here except you know one of them is obviously rose and she's just saying doctor doctor over and over again um and again it's just a really really cool visual um that i don't know like th- this episode has a lot of unique stuff in that way like the the smooth faces the the faces on the television um the way that the wire presents herself like when she gets like flared up with emotion she comes into color a little bit on the television yeah um, i don't know there's just a lot of really cool stuff going on visually here um and eros lynn directs this one like really really well it, it's a really good performance that's not performance it's a really good direction from him um and I, I I genuinely fuck with his the like the Dutch angles, the campiness of it. I guess I would say, um, there's a, there's a really like nice little behind the scenes tidbit, which is that all the aerials in the street uh, that they filmed on were shaped to look like <laughs> swastikas, um, not for any kind of anti-Semitic reason. 
Um, but just to emphasize the sheer weirdness uh, of the street because it's being menaced by an alien, but also because television antennas were not, uh, were just not a th- like as widespread a thing uh, in the 50s as this, ep- as like the conceit of the episode obviously being that all these people have been given televisions for free um, to help the wire in its plan. Um, so I just, I, again, like he, he, I like the fact that he's thinking on visual terms, uh, and really just like finding those visual shortcuts to emphasize weirdness in the street. I think it really, it's really effective. Oh, uh, 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 wait, I have a question. Um, so, uh, okay. Are you saying that the antennas of the time were shaped like swastikas no. or they specifically chose to shape them as swastikas in the production of this episode. I'm saying that they specifically chose to shape them like swastikas in the production of this episode. Normally television antennas. Um, because the thinking was that, uh, it's an instantly recognizable shape, but it's also a very, um, it's also a very menacing shape. And so it gets across the idea that it's weird. It's out of place. It shouldn't be there without you, recognizing it because you don't look at it and you think swastika like they only look like swastikas if you saw them in real life the angles that the episode chooses to shoot them from doesn't show them looking like one at all but because you have that connection in your head and you see that swast you see that aerial that's shaped sort of like a swastika um you immediately go weird wrong bad that's insane I'm sorry. I and mean, we don't say things are insane, but like, that's bonkers. I, that. Okay. I, so well, if you ever, okay. I, I, I would have given this a B plus, but. <laughs> this is, um, this is from BBC America. And they say, if you've ever looked at the rooftop TV aerials and noted that they look a little like swastikas, that's deliberate. According to the DVD commentary, the set designers opted for the sinister design so they could evoke a post-war era in which something isn't quite right. Wow. Yeah. Um, I think that's incredibly. Uh, I, uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't like that at all. Um, I, I think that's. Um, I think that's gross, personally. Yeah, it's not a swastika. It's evoking a swastika. Oh, I just looked it up and, uh, yeah, they certainly were evoking a swastika with that. I didn't even notice that when I was watching the episode. Um, but that's the point. You're not supposed to notice it. You're supposed to know that something's wrong. What I'm saying is that I don't think that that's a necessary inclusion from the design department. I think that's just stupidly edgy for no reason. Well, cause like Rose is already, already like, oh, why they all got antennas? I thought nobody had TVs at this time. So like... There's literally already stuff in the episode to be like, the fact that these antennas are here means that something is wrong. Well, no. I don't know why. Sure, but it's like, how do you get that idea across visually? Because you can't just have a shot of aerials and be like, ooh, something spooky's going on. Like, there has to be... A- but the aerials aren't the spooky thing. The aerials are the, the intro. No, but like, they're, they're, they're a plot device. They're not a... They themselves are not the horror here. Well, they are, because they are the receivers and transmitters of the wire's evil in this episode. I mean, yeah, sure, but, like, oh, I don't know. I, I, oof, well, I don't know. I just think this, that's in really poor taste. I, Interesting. I think that's... Um, Interesting. That's a, that's a massive misfire. Oof. Um, well, 
Idiot's Lantern. <laughs> Uh, I didn't think we'd get fixated on swastikas for as long as we did, but... It's a fucking swastika. Like, what do you want me to say? Like, no, I know. Like, like, that is that is a capital C choice uh, being made by these people. It is a capital C choice. It is. Um, I haven't heard any criticism of it. I'm willing to be... I'm willing, 100% willing to hear criticism of the use of them in this episode. Um, they're not... Like, okay, now that I'm actually looking at it on Google, they... Apart from one little kink in the aerial, it's pretty much a swastika. Well, <laughs> uh, well, folks. So, look, here's the thing. Um, it's not ideal that our technical issues are uh, kicked off uh, during a very heated discussion of the use of swastikas in the BBC family-friendly show Doctor Who. Um, but you do play the hand that you are dealt. Yes, and you've defended your side vigorously. Um, not that I particularly want to be on the side of pro swastikas, but, um, I and again, would... that was the hand you dealt with yourself <laughs> that day, apparently. So I am pro, I am pro atmosphere, but not pro swastikas or anything associated with that symbol. And I don't want to dig my own grave. So let's just end it there and give it a rating, shall we? <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, we're just going to very unceremoniously cap off our conversation to the Idiot's Lantern right there. Uh, I think, again, notable highlights. The Wire was awesome. David Tennant is um, okay when he's being quiet. And um, the family unit is is, is great. So uh, I'm going to give Idiot's Lantern a solid... Ooh, um, B. I'm giving it an A minus only because it has such fond memories for me. And I really, I really want it to do good. (laughs) Great. Great, great stuff. Um, (laughs) Okay. So uh, now we are going to be moving a lot right along to fear her, which is episode 11 of series two of Dr. Who. Directed again by Euros Lin and written by Matthew Graham. It's uh, Matthew Graham's first episode for Doctor Who. Not his last, but definitely not his most fondly remembered. Uh, Fear Her. We'll get into that in a moment. But before we do, let's just check in with old IMDb. When children vanish into thin air in 2012 London, the Doctor and Rose find the answers in a seemingly ordinary household and a girl whose drawings can come to life. I don't like this fragment. The Doctor and Rose find the answers um, because they never posed the question. I mean, it's about as clunkily written as the episode is, so... Oh! Oh! oh, oh. Slam dunk. (laughs) Um, No, I liked that. Um, So, just a quick little winging it plot synopses. Uh, The Doctor and Rose arrive in 2012 London during the middle of the Olympic Games, and that's goes down just about as well as you can imagine. Uh, They find that children are missing from an ordinary street, and that this all connected to a little girl who's been making some real creepy drawings uh, in her bedroom. And her mum's just like 100% oblivious to the whole thing. And just like, no, no, just leave her alone. She's fine. But also help me. And the Doctor and Rose are like, okay, well, we'll help you. And then they go up there and then she's like, give me back Chloe Webber. I want Chloe Webber. And, mm-hmm. 
And then the Doctor and Rose figure out that she is being possessed by a creature that's, like, born of, like, a million and is used to being around company and their children and it's got stranded on Earth and it just wants to have some friends. And so it's been snatching kids and trapping them in its drawings, which is very weird. And so they try to get it back to its pod, um, but then the kid Chloe takes the doctor and puts her in a drawing and Rose's first reaction is to shake her violently and say, give me her back. Uh, which is, you know, good on your Rose, a uh, real show of heroism and bravery there. And then what happens then? Uh, at several points during the episode, doctor and Rose tell Trish, Chloe's mum to watch Chloe. And at several points she fails to do that. So, you know, good parenting there, Trish. Um, and then Rose figures out that the pod that the alien arrived in is in the street uh, in some fresh tar because it's attracted to warmth. So she digs up the road, gets the pod, throws it at the Olympic torch, which happens to be going by at that very moment. Uh, and she whispers to it, feel the love. And it feels the love and goes to the, to the flame. And the alien's like, I can go home now. Yay. And then they both leave and Chloe gets depossessed and it's all great. But where's the doctor? Where's the doctor? Well, before we get to that question, uh, Chloe and Trish are menaced by a drawing of Chloe's dad, who's dead and abusive, and they sing a song, <laughs> and the the thing goes away, and it's all happy, and then Rose is like, but I need my doctor. And then they all watch the news, and the newscast is like, 10,000 people disappeared, but they're back, they reappeared, and who's on the route carrying the Olympic torch? None other than Doctor Who himself, David Tennant. And he runs, 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 runs up to the top of the flame, and sets the whole thing alight, and then he goes, woo-hoo-hoo-hoo! And it's all a very happy ending, and Rose and him get to have a happy ending and eat ball bearings on a cupcake. But a storm is approaching. Ooh. Insane. I thought the I thought the ball bearings was the idiot's lantern. No, it's just like they're super similar. So both stories end with them eating cupcakes. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. Okay. Alright. Um it, look, well done. That was um that was the plot of Fear Her. Uh, I guess let's. I mean, let, let's let's get into it. Um, how do you feel about Fear Her? Okay, so I feel like everything I feel about Fear Her can be summarized by my feelings about how it approaches the Olympic Games, which is not well, bitch. Um, I don't want to criticize this episode for like being unambitious, but it is particularly unambitious for an episode that tries to depict the Olympic games. I, it's a funny one because like, it's, this is the episode that fits into the cheap category, right? It's sole purpose is to save money and budget for the series. And so sometimes this can result in some really imaginative, creative episodes. And sometimes it can result in this. And I think that the worst thing you could say about fear her is that it's boring or unimaginative. It's also extremely similar to the idiot's lantern to a fault and i think that we would be well versed to compare the two but like just as a starting off point um the comparisons between the two it's like this is like this episode is idiot's lantern if it was dull and that's not good yeah i i think that that pretty accurately um <laughs> sums that one up it's 
Yeah, it is just a profoundly unengaging, uninteresting, uninspiring episode of Doctor Who. Um, made all the worse by a very shoddy script that um, really doesn't know how to flesh out its sci-fi concepts at all. Um, there's a particularly not good child performer in here, which is always difficult to talk about because you don't want to feel like you're bullying a kid. Um, but at least we're recording this, you know... 15 years after this aired and that kid's grown up and it's okay now at least. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I struggle with, uh, fear her quite a bit because, you know, like when we talked about love and monsters, we talked about the idea that, you know, sometimes going against the grain and sort of going against what fans typically think of an episode can be quite fun and quite interesting. And, and with love and monsters, we found that there was so much to love in that and it was very exciting. And so I did approach fear her with a very open mind. Um, but both times I watched it, I just, Oh, it's such a slog. Mm. And I think it's a shame, you know, cause I don't know how you feel, but, um, it's a shame because I feel like there is the beginnings of something really interesting here in a commentary or, or in a story about togetherness and family and finding connection for a story, which is effectively the Doctor and Rose's last one before the events of the finale. Um, mm, and true. you've got some really good stuff here. You do have some really good stuff here with the mother and the daughter and the alienation f they, they both experience from one another the alienation that they experience as a result of the abusive dad um, and how they're just failing at reaching out to one another and counterpointing that with the Isolus child, which is a vaguely poetic concept. The scene where Chloe describes the pod, it like sending out these millions of spores across the universe and they're all seeking warmth and connection and they create these worlds in which to play while they're traveling is, is, is imaginative. Um, but the writing in just in places lets it down, but the writing in places also elevates it, you know? So it, it maybe it is just a bit of a shit kid performance. Uh, and that's a shame. <laughs> Uh, I think its best writing is just in its ideas. Um, mm. I don't think it gets as far as execution, which is my my big problem with it, is that, like you said, like, decent enough concepts going on here. Um, the, the, the Solus, the, the Solaris, the, the, what is it? Isolus. Isolus. The Isolus child um, is... Yeah, like, it's a neat concept, um, and I think had it not been tethered to that performance, it may have been slightly more interesting, but even still, the episode just spends so much time spinning its wheels. It does have a lot of fun with the Doctor and Rose, and I, I, like, I guess I appreciate that. Some of those moments can be quite nice. Um, but I feel the same way about the, uh, the a soulless child as I do about the abusive father subplot, which is that it's just not fleshed out um mm. it, it's not it's not particularly explored it's a very surface level like a father existed he was abusive uh, a mother is struggling with her child the child is isolated and has bonded with another isolated alien it's it's just very spelt out and mechanical um and so i don't get any emotion from any of it in the same way that i did with um the Idiot's Lantern, where their core domestic troubles, which also included, you know, an, an, an abusively coded father, at least, um, an isolated kid who was struggling with identity and that sort of shit, which was very much subtext in that one, um, but was much more emotionally engaging, whereas it's, you know, 
absolute surface level text here and completely dull to me. Yeah, you're right. It's pretty much a paint by numbers kind of abusive family dynamic setup. Um, which at times can be a useful vehicle to put forward other ideas, uh, but it's not saying or doing anything particularly interesting or different um, on that front. Not enough, and it's not doing what it is doing well enough to be engaging, I guess. Um, mm. But at the same yeah. time, at the same time, I think this is one of the better Doctor and Rose episodes just for the two of them. And we do, we do get to enjoy them as just a good team for the very last time. And that's something to, there's something to be said for that. You know, I, 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 we've both spoken about the, how good that scene is of the, them on the TARDIS with the doctor saying, you know, you need all kinds of things to get across the universe, but the one thing you need most is a hand to hold. And that's like, that's just such a sweet and a very poetic description of like doctor who in general, so it's, it's hard to, it's hard for me to like fully commit to criticizing this episode when it's also such good stuff happening in extreme isolation. Yeah. Uh, I, I definitely vibe with what you're putting down there. Like um, I put in the show notes, one of my all time favorite Doctor Who jokes is in this episode, um, which is like the very first shot of the TARDIS landing. It has it landing between two dumpsters. And so he tries to open the door and it gets stuck on one of the dumpsters and he's like, ah, oh, <laughs> and then he just goes back inside. It launches off again and relands, opens the door. Oh, <sighs> it's just so effective and simple and a really nice character moment. David Tennant plays it off beautifully. And it's like the hand holding scene or the scene where like, they're both like uh, pretending to be cops together when yeah. they're on the TARDIS. And she's like, oh, permission to follow up Sarge. Um, um, and it, it's sweet. It's it's sweet and it's fun yeah. and it works really well because these actors by this point in the series are so honed into their roles. Um, they feel very uh, like appropriate as, as Doctor and Companion. Mm. Um, it's good again because while Rose definitely does feel his absence when he uh, gets, you know, drawing kidnapped in this episode, it's not explicitly romantic and I think a lot of the problems mm. that I've had with this season do come down to when they try to make it explicitly romantic the writing starts to get it really wobbly with Rose uh, it is just more of a in the same way in Idiot's Lantern when the Doctor lost Rose now flip side of this she loses him and so I like all of that stuff mm. um, but it, it doesn't exist in a vacuum in this episode in the way that I can maybe do that with other episodes where I like individual elements because the overwhelming sense that I get from this episode and a lot of this does come down to that last like 10 minute stretch is that it is just profoundly stupid. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like let's talk about the fact that not only do they attempt to do the Olympics on like a shoestring budget, but there's scenes of, I don't know who the newsreader is, I think researching it, it's an actual newsreader from that time in Britain, but he is so fucking hammy and dumb. There's a line where he says, he's talking about the, the, um, the Olympic torch. And he's like, it's not just a torch now. It's a beacon of hope and a beacon of love. And I was like, Oh my God, who the fuck are you? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then there's that scene where uh, the alien inside Chloe Webber basically like loses her shit completely and is like, oh, I'm going to draw everybody in the Olympic (laughs) Stadium so that they can be my friends uh, so that they'll get vanished into her drawing world, which whatever, it's a whole other thing that I don't know how to deal with. Um, And so 
everyone in this packed stadium in London or wherever they are vanishes. And the commentator guy is like, oh, this is quite odd, isn't it? It seems like a lot of people have disappeared. John, are you also seeing this? And then it cuts back to an empty commentator box with a swivel chair just like slowly spinning back around with nobody in it. And he's like, not you too, John. <laughs> and it's just like... I don't understand what the tone of this episode is supposed to be because I know that the writer did an interview where he said, you know, I wanted to write this for my kid. I wanted it to be like kind of silly and fun and, and good for a child. And so on that level, I understand the slapstick nature of that. And I had a very good laugh at it. But then you also bring in the abusive father elements mm. and you're just like, it's a confusing mess because it can't commit to one tone. Do you know? Uh, and if it had just committed to being child-friendly and goofy and a very light-hearted last hurrah for the Rose and Doctor, the Rose and Doctor, um, <laughs> I, I feel like it, it would have been much more engaging than what we got, which is simultaneously hyper-kid-friendly and so it has no teeth whatsoever while playing with ideas that are less than kid-friendly, but because it doesn't have any teeth, it can't do anything with them. And so it ends up in this horrible no-man's land. Yeah, um... I completely agree. And I think that it's a very kind of surface level discussion of those kind of topics. Um, and it's a shame because like this show, this ep particular episode would be well served if it was part of a show that came after it was broadcast, which is the Sarah Jane Adventures, um, which is geared specifically towards kids and is this kind of tone. And if it had Sarah Jane in it, it might've even been a backdoor pilot for that show. <laughs> um, but it's not obviously. Uh, it, it's it is a shame it is a shame yeah it is a little bit um let's think like i mean we don't really like not liking episodes here um there, there, i mean there's definitely one or few stinkers that we are happily going to tear apart um but fear her has a earnestness to it that it really does making make dunking on it um unpleasant because i i think there was good intentions here um i just think it was completely shoddy in its execution mm. um i guess yeah like other than the doctor and rose being quite charming in this um and i mean look you, you can tell how we feel about an episode when we're struggling this early to to sort of continue to find things to say about it but like um is there anything particular that you want to like pull apart with this one a little a little bit not so much with the um the story itself um but there are i just want to loop back to the the doctor and rose dynamic in this episode because i do think the most interesting point of comparison between this episode and the idiot's lantern is the way in which it mirrors the both the doctor and the and i did the same thing the doctor and the roses um <laughs> reaction to the absence of the other and in the idiot's lantern it's the doctor loses rose she gets taken by the wire and becomes a faceless thing and his reaction is to you know he'll He'll, he will do anything to get his rose back and he starts shouting and he goes immediately on the hunt and he's just so determined and and is the hero of that episode because he's the one that climbs the tower and uh, defeats the wire and brings Rose back. This episode is slightly different because when the role is reversed and it's the doc and it's Rose losing the doctor and he's so in the course of the episode Chloe takes the doctor away and puts her in one of his one of her drawings. Rose's, Rose is much more scrappy in the way that she approaches the situation. Um, and as I noted in my synopsis, her first reaction is to like shout and yell at Chloe to bring the doctor back. It's not 
clever. It's really quite, like, um, violent in a way, especially for a child who's the victim of abuse. Like, I'm not saying for a minute that this is an intentional commentary. I do think it was just a bit of a lapse of judgment. Um, and I'm also not criticizing mm-hmm. it either. But it is interesting that Rose's reaction is much more emotional in a way that the Doctor's isn't. It's emotional on a more visceral kind of level. And it brings out a really awful side of her in that particular moment. Um, and it's also, maybe I'm stretching a little bit too far, but it also highlights something that I've kind of thought was one of the inconsistencies with Rose is that on occasion she is sympathetic to everyone she encounters, alien or human. And then on some other episodes, she can only be sympathetic towards human people. And it's funny how I feel like her reaction to the Isolus in this episode is quite like there's the scene in the TARDIS where she's like, she just doesn't, she fails to empathize with the child Isolus and says, you know, it's just a brat having a spoiled temper tantrum. And then she shakes the Isolus inside Chloe Webber and it's funny to me that it all reads as like, she doesn't think about alien children as children. Um, Do you agree? What do you think about what I've just said? Yeah. Well, I mean, like it's no secret that I um, really think that Rose is very inconsistently written in the show. And so uh, there definitely have been flashes of her being sympathetic towards aliens. Um, But yeah, I I suppose that could be like, like a subconscious choice that they've made with her character. Um, It it would have been interesting to maybe explore that as, as part of her character, but that would require the show to care about her beyond her relationship to the doctor. Um, And so you bring up an interesting point though about when she uh, she loses the doctor and she immediately goes and like physically assaults Chloe Webber in front of her mother, <laughs> who would have a history of seeing her daughter get physically assaulted, and it's just you're right, like it it feels just like an absolute oversight because I feel like the story loses its own focus so often that um it's just one of those like hiccups where you're like that that feels like that should have been a moment if you guys were sort of tracking the emotional reality that you'd been writing this whole time um Hmm. but uh, again i don't want to come in too harsh on this one i suppose another element is uh there is like a half-hearted attempt at community and race politics here as well Absolutely. One of the characters I didn't mention in my synopsis was the council worker. I don't think they even, I don't remember if they give him a name, but they must do. I do not want to believe they just call him council worker. Um, But there's a scene where some of the neighbors come out into the street and start accusing the council worker of uh, kidnapping their kids. And it should be noted that he is played by a black actor. And so immediately you, the, the dialogue dances around it, but never, ever, ever it makes it explicit what it's saying in subtext, which is that, you know, he's being racially profiled and he's having a race, it's a racist attack on him and his character, it's slander. He only ever says that slander um, in response. And you're, yeah, I think what we were just saying about Rose and her reaction to aliens and this episode's discussion of community, that scene and that relationship with that particular character could have gone away to to tying all these elements together and being uh, a commentary on that. But I don't think it is. 
No, that that's it. Like it it just uses them as like a set dressing to be like, oh, maybe the story has something going on, and um, because yeah, it doesn't commit to any of them, and so it doesn't explore any of them in any sort of interesting way. Um, uh, yeah, it's and and again, it, I'm glad that we paired this one with the Idiot's Lantern, um, because there are a lot of parallels here, sort of like that, you know. Uh, very normal London street or UK street or whatever it was. And uh, a lot of social commentary going on there. Idiot's Lantern, the family unit and technology fear her is uh, like a broken family unit and community and, and what that means. Um, but again, and I struggle to talk about this beyond like a surface reading because I don't see the episode doing any sort mm. of work to go beyond that surface reading. And so it's difficult for me to sit here and try to wring a, a, a conversation out of this that's longer than the episode itself. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> You're right. And there's also the way that both episodes are structured around a major like London event that people gather mm-hmm. around the television to watch. Um, the Actually, the comparisons are endless. and But I do think you're right. I don't think that they... I really do believe that the production team, it was completely unintentional on their part. And that's a problem. Um, you know, I guess I could chalk that up to second season jitters and not wanting to repeat mistakes and then going too far in the opposite direction. We saw the same thing with Moffat in a different result. Definitely the same thing with Chris Chibnall. Um, I would never judge a showrunner mm. on their second seasons because they aren't always the best. But this one has to, it has to be said that a lot of season two has not been, you know, we're getting, oh, oh my God, I'm getting so far into a season two wrap up. That's not what, <laughs> that's not what the episode no, is. But like, it, it's absolutely worth bringing up though, because like we are now at the arse end of this season. Like next week, we're literally going to be sitting down to record our, our thoughts and feelings on the finale of season two. Like we'll be saying goodbye to Rose next, <clears throat> next week. And so you are kind of forced into this very looking back, uh, you know, retrospective kind of vibe. And, and yeah, it, this is just, this is quite a fitting end cap to season two before the finale, because it has been such a wildly uneven season of television. Mm. Uh, and you can, I mean, like if we listed our review scores anywhere because we were smart, which we don't yet, um, I, you could literally track our sort of our disappointment with the show across time here. Um, with obviously a few exceptions, uh, being surprise standouts. Um, yeah, I, it's, it's worth looking at this episode, I guess, from the perspective of, the Doctor and Rose's last hurrah, but also um, the the fact that this is the fact that it's Rose in the in this instance who has to take on the Doctor mantle in this episode and sort of her coming of age in a way, coming mm. of age, stepping out of the Doctor's shadow and being the hero. And I do think it's a massive shame that she isn't actually the hero of this story. It's a shame. She has a good moment with Trish when um, she urges her and um, Chloe to sing to get rid of the uh, of the abusive dad. But that whole moment is really centered around the, the mother-daughter dynamic. Um, the only other heroic moment in the episode is the, the torch, right? The torch being taken up to the top of the Olympic Stadium. But that's the Doctor's moment. And it's the Doctor's moment for a really dumb reason. Yeah, um, exactly right. Rose is just so sidelined in a story that should be hers and is hers until the point that it isn't. And it's, mm. it's just, it's, it, it is clunky writing when I think about it from that perspective, it's clunky plotting in a way, in a way as well. <laughs> it, it really is. And like, I, I'm reminded of, um, uh, 
The Impossible Planet and the Satan Pit, which was another story that specifically tried to give Rose a hero role and let her have the hero role mm. uh, without, like, it, it simultaneously gave the Doctor his main character role and it gave the companion a fully realized, simultaneous hero story alongside him. Um, and obviously, that is like a big, grand, epic sort of sweeping story. Um, but then in this episode, you you specifically write into the script a reason to make Rose the hero and they still pedal back on it immediately. Like she, you know, she, or she has to become, I'm nothing without him. Yes. Um, like she, like, yeah, she, she tosses the, the little, um, heat seeking, uh, ship that the, the child needs into the torch. And, you know, she has that, I mean, like, yes, feel the love is a very silly <sighs> line, but at least the big moment goes to her and it's understated in an episode that is quite understated. And so I, I vibe with it up until that point. The problem then, though, like, as we've discussed, is that when the Doctor reappears, instead of reappearing on the street like everybody else does um, that was taken from that street, he reappears at the Olympic Stadium specifically to grab the torch from the now-fainted runner for some reason <laughs> and run it up to the, the big torch itself, which is is very silly, and and but very, very early Doctor Who bravado. Like yeah. I, I think it tracks with where the show was at culturally at the time in terms of its um, social cash and whatnot. The part that bothers me is that it's specifically noted that the ship is only able to achieve orbit after he does this. Yes. And so Rose's big moment is his big moment mm. now. Um, and in a better script, there would have been the concept of the torch itself being a something that is passed on between people, showing that, you know, we go we don't get to massive victories without human cooperation and whatnot. Um, but this is not a better script. It's, it's fear her. <laughs> yeah. We are doing a lot of the heavy lifting here. I do think. Um, and I don't mind that we're doing that because obviously the reason why we engage with media is to discuss and pull it apart. And, you know, we come to our own conclusions and we come to our own, um, th- uh, theories i guess about these episodes and that's an enjoyable process but yeah it's not there and it is dumb it is there's no way you can cut it that isn't this these these moments are for the sheer like uh energy of the moment not because they make sense and that's a shame Mm. because they could have actually made sense and they could have serviced the characters very well and they again they could have serviced rose really well and i feel like they think they were doing that is the other problem and <laughs> well i mean that's kind of the issue with uh rtd's whole outlook as a showrunner on rose is that at the time i think what was considered uh a powerful arc for a woman especially coming from a man um it's just mm. hasn't aged particularly well and it's aged rapidly um mm. i mean the show itself is in discourse with it, uh, you know, the relationship that it has with women even now. And so, you know, we're still dealing with the same show now. Like it's still the revival, um, whether like you can look at Clara, you can look at Bill, you can now look at Jodie Whittaker in the role. Like there has been an ongoing conversation about women in Doctor Who. Um, and yeah, just a, a byproduct of that is that where it started from and the time that originates from means that we just get these very, um, sanitized, uh, women at times and it's just a bit of a bummer yeah it is and I don't really have much more to say on fear her other than it has it does have actually okay I will end on a positive for me it does end on one it does have one moment that I really like and also that I feel like is very 
doctory for David Tennant that he hasn't really had a lot of those moments that I've liked this season. But the one, and it's a little cutaway, throwaway moment, but it's when they've just been to up in Chloe's bedroom and the three, the mum, Doctor and Rose, come down to the kitchen and the doctor's thinking and he just grabs a jar of jam and sticks his fingers in it and starts eating. And then Rose is like, <clears throat> and he's just like, Oh, okay. Puts it away. It's it's dumb, but it, it it's totally 100% doctory. And I do think actually that David Tennant is given a lot of those moments where a bit of levity in this episode where he gets to, um, he gets to be a bit more fun. His acting with uh, children isn't something that he's particularly remembered for. That's probably more Matt Smith's era mm, uh, kind of yeah. doctory, but he is quite good with the actor who plays the kid in this. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm, I, I wouldn't have anything to say about David Tennant in this episode. Um, the other thing that's really good about this episode is it gives us the great meme of Rose coming out of the back of the van with a pickaxe and <laughs> anything that can give me fodder to share to people on the internet is uh, good in my books. Yeah, it's weird that, like, the image of Rose with the space cannon is the one that took off and not the one of her with the pickaxe, because, I mean, I vastly prefer the pickaxe one, but... Uh, she looks so, I like, manic in it. She's just, like, got this she enormous does. grin, and she's like, I'm gonna fucking tear the road apart! <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's good. That is that is unequivocally good. Um, you said, like, you know, let's wrap this up on, like, a positive one from you, and I agree with that. And so I attempted to do that by just quickly going over your show notes, because I didn't make any for this episode, because I'm an idiot. Um... But in doing so, all I've done is discover that, uh, what is his name? Matthew Graham, our, our writer for this episode, also wrote a pretty decent two-parter, which we're going to come up on in, in a few more years of Doctor Who, <laughs> uh, The Rebel Flesh and The Almost People, which this isn't a fear her positive, but it did remind me how much I really enjoyed that moment when the Doctor goes, Amy hasn't been with us for quite some time. <sighs> um so I know he's a good writer at times. I mean, granted, that's all he ever wrote for Doctor Who was those two and, and this one. Um, and it's not fair of me to steal Fear Her's conclusion to highlight a line many seasons away, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's my show. <laughs> and, you know, I don't think we are criticising Matthew Graham's ability to write Doctor Who because I actually, like you, I really like that those two episodes from Matt Smith's era. I really like Matthew Graham and he is a seasoned writer. He originated Life on Mars and Ashes to Ashes, which are two very well received, very well written BBC dramas. Um, you know, he is he is good. Uh, I think it's just Doctor Who is, and we will come up against this so often as we venture further into Doctor Who. It Doctor Who is such an odd show in that it takes really good, really seasoned writers who know their stuff and chews them up and spits them out. And for some mm. people, they just can't get the formula. For some people, they can get the formula, but there's very specific agendas happening from the showrunner's point of view that they their vision is not it gets recycled through this process of script editing and comes out a bit of a mess. It, it's, it's, it's a tough one, you know, because it, this is written by Matthew Graham, but it's Matthew Graham in an RTD era of the show. And yeah. you can't ever say that everything is his... You can't say it's all his fault, is what I guess I'm saying. 
Oh no no definitely not. And look, I, listeners, I'm sure you can gather from our tone. This isn't this isn't like when we were mad at um, you know uh, World War Three or something like that. Like we're not we're not mad. There's no venom here today. It's just purely didn't particularly vibe with this episode. Don't have a huge amount to say about it. There's a reason we did this one as a as a special two part with the Idiot's Lantern because we knew that this would happen. Um, and so I'm glad that we've just kind of I don't know. I guess we're just ending this with a very loud. Eh. <laughs> we're the MTV generation. We experience neither highs nor lows. What's that like? Eh? Eh? <laughs> exactly. Um, so look, fear her. I am. I'm gonna slap fear her with a uh, a, a very sad um, C minus. Uh, I'm also. I- I'll give it a C. I'll give it a good old C. Nothing beats a C. No. Except C's all the way. C plus upwards. <laughs> Well, there you go. He explained his own joke. Um, that is as good a time as any to wrap this one up for us this week, I think. Um, as I just said, next week we will be recording um, our episode on... Um, Army of I don't Ghosts remember the offic- and Doomsday. Army of Ghosts and Doomsday. Uh, two episode names I remembered organically and CJ didn't just whisper into the microphone for me. Um <laughs> We have a lot of thoughts on these two coming up. I think we're going to have a nice big conversation about them. Um, same way that we did with the end of season one, uh, we'll probably tack on a little season two recap at the end of that one uh, because we're going to very organically get into like the end of Rose. Um, mm. We were we were discussing this the other day off the show, but like uh, time has been very strange in 2020, and so the idea that we are now at the end of the first like proper leg of the show is is a really odd feeling for us. It is. It is. I, I don't really know how to feel about Rose, the coming to the end of Rose. It feels like it's been a long, protracted goodbye. Um, only in the sense... In the worst sense, actually, because we both of, I, both of us have been really looking forward to actually just getting into Martha. And I don't want to just yeah. dismiss this character completely. This very formative character for me, you know, personally... Um, and somebody who I still have an enormous well of love and devotion towards. But it has to be said that this season has dragged. I knew it would. Uh, season two is not my favorite. And I don't, but I also don't want to just get to, to next week and be like, thank God that's over. Now we get to talk about good stuff because <laughs> it's not. And I love this no, finale coming yeah. up. So, um, yeah, it's going to be good. That, I mean, that's, that's very fair. Like I, we are quite sp- uh, divided on this finale in, in a few very key ways, which are going to be very interesting for us to talk about. And, um, yeah, it has been sad to have this kind of like slow motion disillusionment around Rose is what I feel like our podcast has become over this season specifically. Um, because we both came into like recording this being like, yeah, we fucking love Rose. She's iconic. And I very quickly fell out of love with her, which you can like literally hear this happen on the show. Uh, and CJ has been, uh, I would say he had a denial phase <laughs> for a good period of time there. Um, but I think we're finally pretty nicely. We've both come back to the center a little bit. There's yeah. a lot of good in Rose. Um, and, and we are in a lot of ways sad to see her go, um, but we are very excited to talk about Martha. And we're also just very excited to move on to a new season, uh, you know, imbue our show with a bit of new life as well. Um, end of the year, we're feeling a bit introspective, you know? <laughs> yeah, I am definitely keen to wrap this year up just personally, professionally, 
mentally, um, any other, any, any state of being you can describe. Let's get this done. Um, yeah. Let's pop a bow on it. Call it a day. Um, but I guess. So yeah, look. Yeah. Uh, no, you go. I think I was about to wrap up, but also you should wrap up. <laughs> I just like wrapping up. It makes me feel like I'm in control. I've already made that joke on the show once, but we're making it again, <laughs> folks. That, that's 2020. Yes. Um, as always, thank you so much for listening to us ramble on about this wonderful show. Um, you can reach out to us if you want to have your thoughts, feelings, or questions read on the show, which, by the way, I know we have listeners, and I know you're not writing in, so... Let's fix that. If you want to make 2020 a little bit more tolerable for CJ and I, send us a question. It would make us feel really good. Uh, you can do that by writing in at uh, twoheartspodcast at gmail.com. That's two, the word two. Uh, you can also find our Twitter and Instagram and Facebook account at twoheartspod. And that's the number two. And I have been CJ. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at theatricalum. And I remain James, and you can still find me on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and now twitch.tv.com uh, at OMG More James. I've watched your Twitch. I've watched your Twitch. It's great. And that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, great. Uh, <laughs> go subscribe to me on Twitch. Uh, you know, whatever. Do what you got to do. Support your boys. And uh, we hope that you're out there having a good one, that you're safe and you're healthy and you're taking care of yourself. And we will see you in two weeks' time for... Oh, more Cybermen. More Cybermen. Surprise appearance from an enemy we haven't seen in a few episodes, maybe? Ooh, it's a series finale. I wonder who it could fucking be. I won't give away a secret from... 14 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, take it easy. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.